There is a significant federal project under development in the Galveston Bay and Houston system that we are going to talk about today with a special guest joining us on the Local Control Podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I am pleased to welcome to the show Jim Blackburn. Jim is a Houston lawyer, an environmental lawyer and planner. He is a professor in the practice of environmental law and civil engineering at Rice University and is one of the key folks and a co-director of what is called the Speed Center. And we'll find out from Jim what that is. But the organization is very active in the future discussions of projects in the Galveston Bay system. Jim Blackburn, welcome to the Local Control Podcast, and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, I'm happy to be here, Peter. It's good to talk with you. Well, I know you've been spending a lot of time over the last three, four, five years on the issue of Galveston Bay. Tell our audience about what you're trying to do, maybe introduce us to the Speed Center and uh, what your goals are in your role in the planning of the future of the system. Well, I'll start with the Speed Center, and that's SS. P-E-E-D, uh, the Severe Storm um, Prevention, Education, and Evacuation from Disaster Center at Rice University. Um, we are basically a combination of Rice University faculty as well as uh, faculty from LSU, Texas A&M, University of Texas, um, a, a lot of affiliated universities. And what we try to do is to bring the talent into basically understand and then address the problems that are affecting the primarily the coastline of Texas. Uh, we received most of our funding from the Houston Endowment to study the Galveston Bay area. And of course, Galveston Bay is home to about 2.2 uh, million uh, barrels of refining capacity per day, as well as two to 300 chemical plants. And there's about 800,000 people that live right around the Bay Rim all of whom are in harm's way from a major hurricane that would have surge flooding. And surge flooding is, I think, potentially the biggest disaster that we could possibly have in our part of the world. And it's what we have been working on for now, actually upwards of 10 years, uh, here at uh, Bryce University uh, at the Speed Center, uh, really starting after Hurricane Ike in 2008 and continuing through to today. Well, I do think uh, the focus on the problem that you guys are working on at the Speed Center, uh, Jim, really came to the forefront with Hurricane Harvey. Uh, did that storm uh, get the attention of folks down there about getting serious about trying to address flooding in the uh, in Harris County and Galveston Bay? Oh, there's no question that Harvey caught everyone's attention. Uh, but Harvey was a rainfall storm, not a surge storm. And so it directed everyone's attention at it, trying to address huge rainfall events and really the inadequacy of our current plans for addressing that rainfall. Uh, but it didn't help us with regard to hurricane surge flooding, except in a, a kind of a funny kind of corollary way. Um, because Harvey was a rainfall storm, you know, surge was not a key element. So we missed that part of the, uh, if you will, the uh, uh, damage causing uh, uh, kind of part of the hurricane. But what Harvey did do is Harvey basically allowed us to begin to talk about storms that were unprecedented. Uh, up until the time Harvey came, had we modeled a storm like Harvey, we would have been told that we were crazy that we had lost our mind, that we were ivory tower researchers, we are out of touch with the real world, uh, who would have predicted 45 inches of rain in four days. So that type of thing. So Harvey was important in that way. You know, the thing I've always wondered, Jim, and would love to get your comment on this is uh, because Hurricane Harvey absolutely was a rainfall flooding event. As you said, 45 inches of rain over four days absolutely flooded the city. Uh, and the focus kind of very quickly turned to this Ike Dyke, what was at the time, I believe, called the Ike Dyke, and I believe is uh, now a project that the Corps of Engineers refers to as the uh, Coastal Barrier. But this is a storm surge project, and uh, 
from what I understand, Jim, the estimated cost of this thing, uh, it's in planning and design now for at least another, I guess, 18 months of work. Uh, but the, the, the numbers that I'm hearing are about $32 billion. This project involves the potential uh, construction of a storm surge gate across the Galveston Ship Channel entrance, a gap of about two miles. I mean, you just have to kind of scratch your head a little bit because the storm, uh, the Harvey impact, as you said, was a rainfall event that would have just drifted right over the top of that barrier had it been in place, and it would have had no appreciable benefit. I mean, how did how did this sort of storm prompt a investment in a, in a system that doesn't seem to be related. I, I don't want to be critical. I know surge is a real thing, but can you help me understand how the politics of that un- unfolded? Well, actually, I think, um, Peter, you are linking two events in time that were not linked um, from a rational standpoint. The work on that the Corps was doing uh, really goes back to Hurricane Ike in 2008. Ah, uh, okay. And Bill Merrill at Texas A. Bill Merrill at Texas A&M Galveston suggested right after uh, Hurricane Ike came ashore, and Hurricane Ike caused tremendous damage to Galveston, the city, primarily with flooding from the backside. It also flooded a number of the exposed shorelines along Galveston Bay, but the bulk of Ike went to the east. Ike basically missed the Houston Industrial Complex, but Ike absolutely horrified Bill Merrill. He he was in a downtown Galveston um, uh, structure during uh, Hurricane Ike, and um, you know he came out of it convinced we had to do something massive, and he came up with the concept that at the time was called the Ike Dyke, which was essentially a barrier that ran from High Island, which is about uh, 30 miles, 40 miles north of Galveston, uh, came down the Bolivar Peninsula, crossed the Bolivar Road's uh, two-mile-wide gap there that's the pass that feeds Galveston Bay, and then connected with the Galveston Seawall and went all the way to the south end of Galveston Island. In total, something along the order of a 70 to 80 mile barrier built along the coastline. That was Bill Merrill's concept. It gained, it gained political legs. And then the politics unfolded in the oh, 2012, 2015 time period that got the Corps involved in studying it. And their study was ongoing when Harvey came and they unveiled their results which seemed like a, a response to Harvey, but was in fact the result of several years of planning that had been ongoing. Thank you very much. I, I, <laughs> I've always wondered, and yeah, that's a great uh, clarification of the history. And so we stand today at a point where the Corps of Engineers is doing this uh, Coastal Protection and Restoration Project, I believe is the general name for this investigation of the uh, barrier uh, in the Galveston Bay system. And Jim, I understand there's some discussion and debate about what would be the proper method to protect uh, the Harris County petrochemical industry, as you said, the 800,000 people along that shoreline, uh, the massive uh, investment and risk associated with the petrochemical complex. The, it, it, I think if I understand it right, the Speed Center has an idea that is a little bit different from what the Corps seems to be favoring now. Can you introduce us to that discussion? Sure. Uh, The Speed Center was really looking at in-base solutions rather than solutions right down at the coastline. Um, I think we were of the belief that Texas A&M and the Corps were studying the uh, coastal spine uh, extensively, and that uh, we were concerned uh, that there was sufficient water in Galveston Bay that even if you put up a big barrier like a uh, an Ike Dyke or a coastal spine, that there would be sufficient water in Galveston Bay to still generate about a 20-foot surge along the shoreline of uh, West Galveston Bay, which is where the uh, 800,000 people live, as well as would send more floodwaters up into the Houston Ship Channel. It would have been diminished by the coastal spine, but it would still be significant. So we felt like there was a need for something in bay. And we started looking and basically came up with a concept of running a, uh, a levee 
down the length of the Houston Ship Channel and putting a gate structure across the ship channel in the middle of Galveston Bay and tying it on the north end into the high ground in Chambers County and on the south end into the Texas City levee system that is a currently existing uh, flood protection levee around the petrochemical complex and development, uh, human development, uh, residential development in the Texas City area. And that uh, has the potential to, frankly, protect the 800,000 people in the petrochemical complex refining capacity uh, at a much lower cost. And we just thought that was a pretty decent option to put forward. We also thought that Galveston Island needed a backside levee which was also proposed by the Corps as part of their coastal spine project. And we believe the Texas City levee system needs to be elevated to 25 feet to match the 25 feet of protection that we would be providing along the ship channel uh, barrier system that we're proposing. Uh, Cost-wise, it is a much less expensive project and um, and it frankly is designed for bigger storms than the Corps is designed for. So we think it's got a lot of merit. And there's some recent events that suggest that it actually may offer a once-in-a-lifetime solution that we've not previously had. And all right. And I do want to get to that. And that is the subject of the meeting that you're planning coming up on May 15th. And uh, I really do want to dive into it. But before we we take that turn, uh, let me see if I understand the difference in the project design that you just laid out. And if I'm not summarizing this right, correct me. But it sounds like what you're saying is Galveston Bay is a big, giant body of water. It's something like 600 square miles in size. And if you were to plug it, essentially, with a gate across Bolivar Roads or right there at the Galveston, uh, the Galveston Island, uh, Bolivar Peninsula intersection, uh, what you're saying is the flood risk inside the bay itself uh, is sufficiently large to generate a tidal surge into the petrochemical complex and into the into Harris County and into these communities of levels of up to 20 feet. Uh, and that's a pretty fundamental uh, criticism if 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 I'm reading if I'm hearing you correctly. In other words, the barrier across the mouth of the uh, Galveston Ship Channel entrance down there, is just not going to be effective to prevent this surge risk. Is Am I following your reasoning correctly? And yes, you are following the reasoning correctly. And you know, a lot of this has to do with the size of storms that you're analyzing. A lot of this has to do with the pathway that the storms follow. Uh, but certainly with the circulation patterns that you've got, uh, with the storm, for example, hitting on the uh, south, of, south end of Galveston Island, uh, down toward Freeport, uh, that uh, counterclockwise circulation will push water from Trinity Bay back across. Uh, Trinity Bay is sort of the northeast side of the Galveston Bay system, and anything that, that puts circulation across uh, Trinity Bay will push that water across uh, the, the uh, what's called the main body of Galveston Bay and into the western shoreline. Similarly, if you get a storm that goes further to the east, the back circulation will push water from Trinity Bay all the way back down the bay system. And so we have a lot of long fetches, and uh, depending on the pathway, there's a lot of vulnerability there. I think also this raises the question of the size of the storms that we're analyzing, and that, that's something I think we'll want to talk about further. But our methodology and the course methodology differ a bit there. And, I mean, we believe Galveston uh, seawall, which is at 17 feet, is not high enough at the current time and uh, needs to be strengthened and needs to be raised. And, again, this has to do with the size of storms that we're seeing in the future. But I do want to tell you one thing, the Corps of Engineers has recognized that this problem of in-bay flooding exists, and they are proposing gate structures on both uh, on two of the bayous, uh, Clear Lake area and down in Dickinson Bayou, which are on the west shoreline. They're proposing gates to be shut to keep bay water out of those uh, basically uh, tertiary bay systems. And then they're also uh, proposing a, a large uh, non-structural area, which will ultimately become probably a buyout area, which is just residential areas that they cannot protect with that uh, coastal spine solution. 
Okay. So it sounds like there's a couple fundamental points of departure here between the approach that you're taking. There is some common ground, it seems like. They're recognizing in-bay flooding in the federal planning process here, but it it, it doesn't seem that y'all are in agreement on what the design storm scenarios are. In other words, what scenarios should be evaluated to test the effectiveness of the design concepts. Can you go a little bit further into what you think the Corps is not doing in their design storm analysis? What are they leaving out? Well, I think you have to look at it in terms of different approaches. I think the Corps has a a, a methodology that was developed over a long period of time that basically melds together a large number of storms to sort of come up with an average situation to try to address. And I would tell you that that is going to be dominated by smaller storms, frankly, um, over a long period of history. Well, I just wanted to make sure I caught that point. Um, the Corps is using a historic storm analysis here. So, Tell and and that's what I wanted is that's what you're suggesting is their data that feeds into their model is no longer the latest greatest given climate change. I hate to jump ahead, but please continue. No, no, that's exactly the point. I mean, the you know the fact is our climate is changing. The Gulf of Mexico is getting hotter. Our atmosphere is hotter. Uh, these hurricanes are fueled by the heat of the ocean. Uh, just fundamentally, there's more fuel for these storms. The uh, atmosphere can hold more water. Uh, the storms that we're seeing today are increasingly larger and more devastating than storms we've seen in the past. Uh, uh, for example, Hurricane Ike was, quote unquote, only a category two storm, but it had a hurricane force wind field that went uh, much wider than would be the expected with most of your hurricanes of a category two size. So that led the National Weather Service to begin to break away categorization of storms by wind speed categories and making a separate surge projection on a storm by storm basis. And then we had Harvey, Maria and Irma in 2017. And those storms were just incredibly large. And um, I mean, we know Harvey was a huge rainfall event, but uh, Maria and Irma were equally large um, hurricanes. And had Irma hit the Texas coast, it would have been an incredibly devastating storm surge. So we're seeing storms that historically, the historic record does not accurately reflect the storms that we're seeing today. And it is further unlikely that the historic record will capture the storms of tomorrow. At, at Speed Center, we were free to pick what we thought were reasonable storms to plan for, and the Corps' methodology locked them into looking at a historic storm pattern. So I would tell you there are, I think, just fundamental issues with the methodology that the Corps of Engineers was really kind of forced to utilize based on uh, standards and principles that have been in effect for many decades. Well, that just seems a little frustrating, doesn't it, that the we have a procedural process here or a procedural rule or a historic way of analyzing problems that's freezing us in a position that uh, doesn't allow us to fully compensate uh, or account for changing conditions. Um, I'm sure that you've made this uh, point of view uh, quite clear to the Corps of Engineers. Do you expect them to... Uh, or can you tell me why they wouldn't want to do what you're suggesting? Well, my, my understanding is that the Corps will be, there needs to be changes at the um, uh, Washington level of the Corps in terms of the methodologies that are approved to be used. I mean, these are processes that are their method, methodologies uh, for analyzing appropriate engineering solutions that have uh, been developed over uh, many decades. Uh, they were well chosen and well informed perhaps when they were developed, um, which I would tell you at least goes back to the 1980s, um, but they really aren't appropriate. But this gets to a, a fundamental problem of how honestly we're talking about climate change. 
I mean, this is a this is fundamentally about climate change. It is about how big of a storm is it reasonable to anticipate. Uh, if we are in denial about the climate changing, and I would tell you, at least at this point, uh, the federal government's schizophrenic about it, if nothing else. In Texas, I think both our governor and lieutenant governor are in denial about climate change. Um, it's very difficult to have an honest discussion about the types of storms that we should anticipate if we really can't anticipate the climate change that is going to be occurring. So we're we're at a very weird place where we have excellent science that our politics may not allow us to utilize. And I think that is a fundamental problem that will affect every shoreline of the United States and frankly will affect the uh, the analysis of rainfall flooding throughout the United States. Now, damn it, if I was trying to explain that to my mother and I told her that the evidence is that the storms are changing, that there's a record already in the in the near past year, within the last decade, and that we're planning to spend billions of dollars to uh, tackle this problem. And I said, gee, you know what, mom, they just can't figure out how to plan ahead here with the changed scenario, she would, I would say most people, every voter and every taxpayer would, would say, well, just get past whatever that BS is and get, you guys have got it. Before we spend $30 billion, can we at least take a hard look? I mean, I know that the core is a rigid institution. I know that these planning uh, processes are very well established and thought out in their uh, engineering reviews and all of the ERs and all of the documentation that that really make sure that their processes are are well thought out. But boy, it sounds like we're just trapped in. I, I hate to say it, it sounds absurd to me. Well, I mean, again, I think to cut the core of bit of slack, uh, if the politicians will not allow them to talk about climate change, if we cannot have an honest discussion about this at the federal level, uh, then, I mean, what do they do? I mean, the question may come back to your mom. Does your mom believe in climate change or not? Um, if she doesn't believe in climate change and if she doesn't want to hear about how the climate is changing, uh, she might be perfectly happy with methodologies that deny the existence. Um, so, you know, sometimes, sometimes uh, we find that rationality leaves us when it comes to discussions of climate. Um, what we've tried to do with our work is to just simply, I mean, we are, we are lucky at Speed Center in that we are not restricted by methodologies. And by the way, those methodologies were developed for good reasons. They prevent overly large projects from being developed. They prevent uh, essentially earmarks being made for projects that are overbuilt and overdesigned. Uh, so they are intended to prevent wasteful, uh, huge projects, perhaps. Uh, so I'm not really attacking the core. I'm not attacking the core. I think the core is, I mean, I have actually, I have a great amount of um, respect for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. I think they're one of our finest engineering institutions. Uh, what I lack respect for is the political process that guides them. And I think it's our politics that are out of whack and that the Corps would respond excellently given the right political signals. Uh, I think that, on the other hand, I think if you ignore those signals, you ignore those signals at your own risk in terms of your advancement within the core and things like that. So I think these are very, very difficult times from that standpoint. Uh, they shouldn't be. And I, I want to join in, in, in your in, in your respect for the Corps of Engineers. We've interviewed uh, Colonel Zetterstrom recently. Uh, last week, we interviewed uh, Brigadier General uh, Owen, who's the Southwest District Commander, we had a chance to sit down with Kelly Burks Copes, who's the project manager on the uh, Galveston Bay uh, Storm Surge Protection Project. I mean, these people are highly credible. I think they they do a great job. Uh, you just hope that the process that they have to operate within, uh, which, as you say, they do not control. It's a headquarters level uh, policy decision does not hamstring them in a way that's detrimental to the communities that they're trying to serve. And um, I want to turn, if you don't mind, I think uh, 
there happens to be a new development, I think, that you're focusing on. And I read about in the email I received from you recently uh, that goes out to your mailing list about the Galveston Ship Channel, uh, the Houston Ship Channel widening project. Uh, and that project is going to move, apparently, a sizable quantity of film material. And it sounds like uh, you're looking at that as a possible opportunity. Can you catch our listeners up on uh, the channel project and how it dovetails a little bit in terms of the speed center's examination of the issue? Well, this is one of those things that you probably couldn't have predicted, but we were simply looking for alternatives that would make sense within the bay. And uh, it turns out that the existing uh, beneficial use uh, disposal that's been going on uh, within Galveston Bay really since the 1990s, uh, has a 25-foot dike that runs along the uh, edge of the Houston ship channel. And we got thinking, well, that dike could be expanded down the length of the channel. Uh, we could create dredge material areas behind there, but also turn that dike into a levee and basically turn that into uh, the principal uh, flood protection source. That was the kind of the concept we came up with, uh, but we had not really coordinated or, or, or dovetailed our thinking with the people that were working on navigation improvements within the uh, core and within the Port of Houston. And it turns out that just recently, uh, a problem has arisen given the size of the container vessels that are using the Panama Canal with the new uh, better Panama Canal, we're seeing larger container vessels coming to container ports like the Port of Houston. And the Port of Houston has been unable to maintain two-way traffic when these large vessels are coming in. And so there is a, a conflict between now oil import exporters and the container traffickers to the point that the Port of Houston really is in, uh, I would say, almost in desperate straits to widen the Houston ship channel. Uh, so there was this uh, impetus that now exists to widen the Houston ship channel that did not exist even two years ago, much less even a year ago, uh, to the extent it exists today. And that impetus will generate a tremendous amount of dredge material that is the raw material for building the flood protection system that has been designed by the speed center. So there's a wonderful opportunity with all of this potential dredging to be done and all of this basically virgin clay to be dug up, a wonderful opportunity to capture that clay and use it to build the levee system along the length of the Houston ship channel and then turn the disposal uh, areas for that dredge material to not only turn it into beneficial use for wetlands, but to develop a park complex and basically create a combination flood control, navigation, dredge material, disposal area, environmental enhancement area, and recreation area, all for the same price. Wow. That sounds like a fantastic idea. Well, that's the idea. And again, the reality of it is that this, this opportunity is just right in front of us. And I don't think any of us predicted that that would be the case. Right. It's a very special and unexpected, uh, like a two for one, because the, the, Houston, the Port of Houston has got to widen that channel because of the Panamax ships and the two-way traffic. All of that is about money and about shipping efficiency. Very, very important that that happen. As you say, they're going to move a lot of material. And here suddenly, in the midst of this discussion over storm surge protection for uh, Harris County, uh, is this opportunity. And uh, to see if these projects can be thought about in in, uh, in, in, in a companion way. I always love these problem solvings and bringing pieces of the puzzle together in interesting ways, Jim. So it's why I wanted to have you on the on the Local Control podcast. Um, as I understand it, on May 15th, you are calling together uh, decision makers and planners in the region 
to meet at San Jacinto College. I'm going to say it's in Corbin Hall, the music building. And uh, the doors are going to open at 6 p.m. And it's going to start at 6.30 p.m. on May 15th at San Jacinto College. And Jim, this meeting is, a, is, is, is really to try to uh, begin putting some flesh on the bones of this idea that you just uh, described. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about what you hope to happen on May 15th and where things might go from there? Certainly. Uh, first of all, this is a meeting that has been that is being sponsored by uh, Commissioner Adrian Garcia, of Precinct 2 Harris County Commissioner. Uh, he was recently elected back in November of uh, 2018, and he is the Coastal Commissioner for Harris County. Uh, he is the one that is calling this meeting. Um, there's a lot of us that are co-sponsoring it. I think that the purpose of this meeting is to put our idea forward as well as to get an update on where the core is and to hear from A&M Galveston about their thinking about uh, the Igdai Coastal Spine and kind of where that project is. There is a lot of opposition to the Coastal Spine as proposed by the Corps of Engineers. The residents, particularly on Bolivar uh, Peninsula, have been quite adamant that they really don't want a levee system there. Uh, I think uh, uh, Speed Center believes that uh, we need to elevate the roads a bit to make sure we've got good evacuation routes. Uh, we believe, and I think the Corps believes now, that um, putting uh, sand on the beaches Coming up with a, uh, a sand uh, source, uh, sand uh, rejuvenation program for the beaches and dunes would be an excellent uh, uh, project. Uh, and we're in accord with that thinking. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll hear about some of these modifications to the course thinking that have been uh, really recently considered. I think the core uh, will be announcing that there will be another opportunity for public comment and review, which I think just reflects the reality that the Corps has proposed a very ambitious and very large, uh, expensive project that has generated substantial opposition. Even with the mid, even with the barrier along the ship channel, there is going to be a lot of water coming into the Galveston Bay system with the hurricane, and. I would love to see creative concepts of being able to block off the path between Bolivar and um, between Galveston. The Corps is proposing a hard structure there that would be permanently in place. And I would like to see the Corps continue to study options for creative ways of closing that pass during a hurricane, if such options exist. And, uh, and I think that is something that the, the Corps is interested in looking at, and I think they're uniquely qualified to do. They're, you know, the engineers at the Corps are excellent, and I think that there is a better solution out there than they have come up with with regard to the gate structures, uh, which were basically, you only have two structures like them, the uh, Maislon Barrier in the Netherlands and the environmental gates at the Eastern Shelf. And both of them, I mean, certainly the Eastern Shelf was heavily impacted uh, by the gates that were built there, by the environmental flow gates that were part of the flood protection structure. Uh, but they also rerouted the Rhine River at the same time, so it's a little difficult to say exactly what caused what. But we know that the potential for bay impacts is significant. We believe that the bay barrier probably just makes sense to build first, but knowing that there may well need to be more done back down along the coastline. Certainly Galveston needs to be better protected. It's got to have a backside levee. I think the seawall needs to be elevated. We may need to make uh, the protection extend over to Pelican Island, which is a, uh, an island where Texas A&M Galveston and the Port of Galveston are. Um, there's a lot of things that need to be considered uh, in terms of pieces. But I think the important thing is with the Galveston Bay Park Plan that we've designed at Speed Center, it can be built in a as a series of projects as opposed to one huge project. We can have multiple funding sources. We can combine this navigation improvement work and the dredging with the flood protection. Uh, there's authorization under um, 
the word of uh, 2014 that allows for funding to be authorized for projects that combine flood protection and navigation. This is such a project. I don't think we've seen anything like potential that we've got here. Man, that is a lot of stuff. Let me um, let me ask, say a couple things. I uh, on Coastal News Today uh, edition that came out this morning. Uh, the state of Texas just who is a partner, an essential partner in all of these uh, shoreline projects with the Corps of Engineers, uh, the non federal sponsor of record is the General Land Office. Uh, the U.S. Department of the Interior announced this week that uh, George P. Bush and the General Land Office are going to receive $46 million in GOMESA Phase Two revenue. This is offshore oil and gas royalty sharing revenues. And uh, our good friends in Harris County uh, get a specific allotment from GOMESA funding, and their allotment is in excess of $2 million dollars. These annual appropriations go through 2055. So, Jim, I think the that what you're suggesting that the the creative examination of revenues available to tackle uh, projects of this magnitude is uh, going to be part of the puzzle that has to be built here. Uh, is how does it happen financially? Um, do you have any thoughts on? Uh, let me turn. Let me. I'd like to ask you a, a step back a little bit and ask a broader question. Uh, we're watching what the Corps of Engineers is doing up in uh, in New York City and in Staten Island. They're proposing a Bay Barrier project, a multi billion dollar project of shore protection up in that uh, core district. And of course, we have the work going on in Galveston. Uh, in sitting back and watching what's happening around the American shoreline. It seems we are entering a phase where the fortification of the American shoreline is beginning as a response to climate change, sea level rise, etc. Um, you're an environmental attorney. I know that you work so very hard to make sure that the Texas coast is protected. I love reading your annual newsletter on the state of the coastal environment in Texas, Uh are you concerned about this fortification? Uh, is it just inevitable that in our urban communities that we're just going to have to the armor the hell out of these things to protect uh, life and limb? I think the answer is yes. I, I think that we're going to have to accept that as a reality. I've spent my whole career, as you were talking about, I've been really protecting not only the Texas coast, but Galveston Bay specifically. And, I think the thing that caught my attention was at Speed Center, uh, we're working with Dr. Clint Dawson, University of Texas, and uh, Phil Bedient, who is the director of the Speed Center at Rice, and they're computer modelers, and they modeled a really a strong Category 3 storm, uh, like 15% stronger than Ike, with the same characteristics of Ike, coming uh, ashore at the southern end of Galveston Island. And it generated a 24, 25 foot surge up the Houston Ship Channel. Uh, Dr. Jamie Padgett at Rice got hold of that information and she took LIDAR readings of all of the tanks and all of the refineries and chemical plants along the channel. And she came up with a failure rate estimate. And we came up with at Speed Center the estimate that such a storm event would generate 90 million gallons of oil and hazardous substances to be released due to tank failures primarily in different ways. I mean, these tanks are not designed to be inundated by water. They're not designed for flotation. They're designed against wind uh, pressure, but not uplifting water pressure. And there's also all sorts of debris that gets strewn about with the hurricane surge, and they will be penetrated, they'll be altered, and we will have the worst environmental disaster in United States history if we don't do something to protect the Houston Ship Channel. That is my nightmare, that that's going to happen. And I mean, frankly, I believe that we need to take measures that I would never have suggested 15, 20 years ago to address the threat that these storms pose. We are no longer looking at a situation where it's a one in a thousand or one in 10,000 year recurrence interval. We're talking about recurrence intervals with these storms that are getting smaller and smaller. We're looking at storms that would have been classified easily over 
well over 100-year storms that will be less than a 100-year storm in the future. Uh, that's what we've got to get a grip of. And in the process, we're going to have to, I think, take risks with natural systems to save those natural systems. These are hard, hard decisions. These are hard issues. Uh, we think that, I mean, one of the criticisms of the coastal spine is that it will change the tidal prism in Galveston Bay. It will basically threaten the um, the marshes. Um, it will impact uh, the movement of uh, fish and shellfish in and out of the past, which is the central area for the movement of those uh, fish and shellfish. Yeah, those types of impacts may have to be taken. They may have to be absorbed. And I'm an environmentalist saying that. Uh, I would prefer to find the I'd prefer to find the least damaging of these alternative routes. They that's why we think this opportunity with the Galveston Park plan is uh it's really worth taking a hard look at. And we are uh, proposing going forward that this be studied independently from the current core project. I think the current core project is in the process of possibly morphing into uh, certainly being a re is restudying certainly options now. You may see pieces of the core project going forward and you might see the Galveston Park plan being um, proposed as a permit activity funded by others. Uh, those are opportunities uh, I think we're looking to be creative with financing. We're trying to find ways to perhaps use um, some of the um, public interest bond concepts that are out there. It's kind of, you know, the social impact bonds that green bonds could be utilized. We may be able to get industry participation. We may be able to uh, get a reduction in flood insurance payments by the 800,000 people that are in harm's way if we in fact build this. And there may be a willingness on the, their part to uh, pay a lot less in flood insurance and, um, and maybe a little bit more in taxes. Uh, we don't know. These are all options that have to be explored and uh, really gone over seriously. Wow! And, and by the and by the by the way, I just want to say, I mean, we think that we can get the Galveston Bay Park plan built for in the five to six billion dollar range. So we're talking significantly less money as well. Indeed, and you know, in talking to Kelly Burks Copes, who's who's leading that core study effort, uh, she made clear that the rollout of that project is it is a matter of decades that it will come in phases and uh, i got to tell you as a, a texan as an and as someone who uh, is very interested in the health of the coast i am so appreciative of appreciative of the the best and brightest minds being applied to these incredibly complex problems your work the work at the speed center at texas a&m university at galveston uh, other universities that are involved in examining this incredibly challenging issue uh, i was very encouraged to see the level of environmental restoration funding that was built into the core's uh, preliminary plans here 160,000 acres of marshes wetlands oyster reefs etc it was so fantastic to see the court uh, doing that on their initiative as opposed to the outside pressure that typically in the past was required to get them to think that way uh, but these are huge problems and they're very complex for urban areas. Uh, and just as a point of information, we interviewed the director of the uh, of the port of San Francisco talking about the restoration of an old seawall and the extension of storm surge marsh protection in the city of San Francisco. New York City is working on it. Miami. These are places where abandonment, retreat, that kind of thinking doesn't really work at all. The economics simply demand a, a solution along the lines that you're discussing. And Jim, I think your leadership and endorsement um, on this topic is going to be increasingly important over the coming years because we're tackling problems in ways that you said, I think you're quite right. 10 years ago, nobody would have thought of the kind of things we're having to think about now and the world has changed. Well, and I would stress that there's also, I think, potential for natural resource enhancement in the less developed areas. Uh, 
for example, if we can figure out how to pay landowners for carbon sequestration and for fish and wildlife production by marshes, then we can encourage them to allow the expansion of the marshes as sea level rises. And so we're going to have to have these types of responses to the problems that we've got coming in the future. But right now, we don't have the institutional structure that recognizes the full dollar value of marshes and pays a private landowner for allowing marshes to expand into prairies that right now they can run cows on. So uh, we need to create non-structural market-based solutions that are also hand in glove with the structural solutions for the more urban areas, because we're going to have basically challenges at all level. We could lose our coastal wetlands and not have a replacement concept if we don't think in those terms as well. So I think it across the board, there is a need for a, re, a restructuring of thinking that is at a scale that I am not seeing anywhere in the United States that we are preparing to respond at the level we need to respond. I mean, I had a conversation today with educators about we may be committing education malpractice by not educating our young people about climate and what they're going to be facing when they're 40, 50, 60 years old. They are going to be unprepared for what they are facing because those of us that are older are currently unprepared and we're not making sure that the right um, tools get developed to basically help us through what's going to be a crisis of, of the, the largest crisis probably we've, we've seen uh, in the last couple of hundred years. Man, you know, I think there's a whole lot of uh, creative thinking going on uh, all around the American shoreline. Um, and on the issue of climate change, we were at the EarthX conference in Dallas last week. This is sponsored by Trammell Crow and brings together uh, political and uh, business leaders to talk about the environment. Uh, climate change was front and center in just about every platform and uh, panel that we heard. And there were thousands of young people there. There is a kernel, Jim. There are some kids out there uh, that are really uh, trying to get, get up to speed on the future here. There's a great organization called uh, Heirs to the Ocean. That's a bunch of little uh, kids, 15 to 20 years old, who are out there trying to get educated and participate. So the world is really changing. And uh, we, we in all of the conversations that we have with people, I can tell you whether it's a fisheries discussion, a policy discussion, uh, environmental advocacy, or recreation, or real estate, uh, climate change is all over the coast. And uh, what I like to say on on uh, on the network is if you want to understand climate change, look in the water. That's where you'll see it. You'll see it in our tidal changes. You'll see it in our distribution of fish and wildlife. You'll see it in water temperature. It's just vividly there around the American shoreline. And, uh, you know, you're at the forefront. The folks in Galveston Bay uh, are taking a lead here, given the magnitude of the risk. It's fantastic to see the level of thinking, investment, and dialogue that's happening. I find that all very encouraging. Uh, I'm hoping, Jim, that from time to time, you can come back on and give us an update on the thinking uh, in how the Galveston Bay system is going to be managed in light of this risk. Well, I'd love to do that. I think that really we're all engaged in a transition uh, the era that I grew up in, the post-World War II, the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, we're in a totally different reality in 2019-2020 than uh, that reality that I was born into post-World War II. And I think that the most important thing is we need to think of this as a challenge to all of us. I, I think it's so easy, for example, for my, uh, for Speed Center's concepts to be pitted against the Corps of Engineers concepts as if we are warring factions when we're really trying to make sense out of an incredibly difficult problem. Uh, largely, we have fewer uh, ties or that bind us down than the core does. But I think it's all about trying to find solutions 
that are different than the problems that we've dealt with in the past. And and I think uh, Albert Einstein said, you know, the um, the answer to the problems of today doesn't come from thinking like we were thinking when we created those problems. We've got to think differently. And so much of, of our institutional structure, our educational structure is about history and about tradition and about doing things the way we've done them for a long period of time. And we're going to have to shake loose of that. And that is frightening. Uh, we're talking about going places where there's no pathways. And that is frightening to a lot of people. And you know, I see it as opportunity uh, as a litigator. I always hated precedent because my hands were tied by prior court decisions. Many people saw, uh, many lawyers see precedent as comforting. I, I found them as limiting opportunity. I think that's sort of a similar type of situation we're in here. Uh, we could think differently than we've been thinking. Well, new times demand new measures and new men. I can't remember who said that quote, but it was one I was taught in seventh grade in debate. And I think it was James Russell Lowell, as I think the guy who said that. But this is really a case where... The- well, good for you. <laughs> but Jim, I want to thank you for taking... Your memory is much better than mine. <laughs> I, I, it's that in Texas history. I think we won the Alamo. I remember being being that be beaten into my head in seventh grade in a Texas public school. Uh, but uh, thank you, really, Jim. You're a true uh, expert and a true pro. I love the collaborative nature of your discussion. And if we've at all uh, hinted that this is a battle between the Speed Center, the universities, and the Corps of Engineers, that obviously is not the case. Uh I really think that I've never seen the kind of collaborative thinking that I'm seeing now in the Galveston district. Uh, we're going to have a new Colonel Tim Vale coming to the district very soon. Uh, Tim Vale is, uh, is an Aggie uh, and I think he's from spring, Texas, Jim. So he's kind of down in your neck of the woods. Um, and he's been running, I think very instrumentally up in the Walla Walla district, a major engineering, uh, district for the Corps of Engineers. I'm hearing nothing but fantastic things about Tim Vale. Uh, we're hoping to have him on, on the American Shoreline podcast at some point, but, uh, Man, we got to work together. These are huge, huge problems with incredible ramifications economically, environmentally, and socially. And uh, I just love it that there's smart people at the helm. And you're one of those smart people, Jim. And I really appreciate you taking the time to walk us down this path a little bit today. Well, you're very kind, Peter. Thanks for having me on. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Jim Blackburn, environmental lawyer at Blackburn and Carter, professor of practice of environmental law in the civil and environmental engineering department at Rice University and co-director of the Speed Center. I won't list it all out. Look it up online, folks. You'll find the Speed Center online. Uh, Great to have you on, Jim. Thank you so much for the time. I know you're busy as hell and uh, we really appreciate it. Take care, Peter. Thank you.